Today I finished my four-week sermon series on faith and politics uh, called Render Unto Caesar. If you've missed any of the sermons in the series, I've been posting them at uh, the sites you can find on the, in the bulletin. I've also been writing them out so that I'm a little bit careful about what I say. And uh, those have been going on to my blog, jordanrumor.com. So you can read any of the sermons or listen to the ones that you've missed. I've tried in this series to speak truth, but not give my opinion. I wanted to give some background to everybody about how to approach looking at society and looking at politics as a Christian. It's been funny, as the series has gone along, I've had a few people come up to me and, and ask me a little more specific questions. Kind of saying, I've had several people say, Jordan, I wish you would just tell me who you think I should vote for, right? Well, I'm still not going to tell you who I think you should vote for. But uh, I do want in this last sermon to pivot a little bit to talk about a little more how we take what we believe as Christians and turn it into votes and turn it into positions. Um, by the way, I think if I told you who I thought you should vote for, you'd probably either ignore me or be excited that I've verified what you already wanted to do anyway. So, um, so let me talk about why, how I think you should take your faith and apply it to your view of politics. I think part of the problem is that when we as Christians start talking about politics, we start asking some of the wrong questions or asking them the wrong way. We want to know who should Christians vote for? What should Christians vote about certain issues? Um, we do this as Christians, by the way, with other kinds of issues. We ask questions like, how do we know if someone is a Christian or not? What do I have to do to be able to partake in communion? What we want to ask is, what is the line? What is the boundary? What are the things where if you're on this side of the line, you're in, on this side of the line, you're out? Um, it's kind of like owning a house in the country. If you own a house in the country, how do you keep your kids from getting lost in the woods? There's two ways to do it. One is to have clear markers like a fence. You say, okay, kids, stay in the fence. You can't go past the fence. But the other, the other way you can do it, especially if you have older kids, is to say, all right, here's the center. Here's our house. Stay near the house, right? Don't go too far away from the house. Make sure you can always see the house wherever you go. See, some faiths and some belief systems are based on the boundary. I think Islam is like this. Islam is really based on the lines that are drawn. But Christianity is very, a little bit difficult to follow because it is not based on the boundaries. It is based on the center. In fact, I would think that Christianity has pretty fuzzy boundaries. Christianity doesn't always have real clear lines on a lot of these issues. Christianity is based on its center. It's based on its core. It's based on its middle. It says, here is the house. Don't go too far away from the house. The center of our faith is Jesus. That is the center. That is the core. That's the thing that we, our faith revolves around. It's the heart that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to the earth. That Jesus died on the cross to free us from sin and death and give us right relationship with God the Father. We need to live in this awareness at our core in everything we believe about how much we are loved by God. Jesus is the center of our faith. That's the house. 
I believe supporting this center is the Bible. You have to pretend with my drawings that that's a Bible, okay? I think supporting Jesus at the center is the book, the Bible. That anything we say about Jesus or apply from the life of Jesus has to be checked against this book. That it is the authoritative way that we know whether what we believe and what we say about Jesus is true or not true. Um, I make this distinction. Um, some people put the Bible as the center of our faith. I really think Jesus is the center of our faith, propped up and supported by the scriptures. Now, Jesus gave us a quick way to summarize what this view is, what this book says. He was asked what the greatest commandment was. Remember what he said from Matthew 22. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. So core to what it means to Jesus to follow this book are two things. You got to love God and you got to love your neighbor. Now Jesus goes on in parables to tell us that our neighbor is, is anybody. Our neighbor is not just the neighbor right next to us. But we are to love God and we are to love neighbor. That anything we think as a Christian comes out of this core. Anything we do as a Christian comes out of this core. Every belief you have, every action you take needs to come from here. It's got to. Now, this is the tricky part about Christianity though. That there are all kinds of other things that we debate and we talk about and discuss. That what we've got to do is look at this core and we've got to think them through in terms of what our boundary is going to be, but that we don't always agree on. That we often have different conclusions about the issues. And what should happen in Christianity is because we agree on this core, we can disagree on all kinds of other things, but because we have a strong core, a strong center, we can stay in relationship. Um, that has not always been the case. And it's especially not the case when we take an issue that's out here and try to make it an issue that's in here. For example, I think the church, in the way it has discussed the issue of homosexuality, has really kind of confused this. Both sides of the issue, conservative, and wanting to support it, and wanting to say it's wrong, have made it the center of the faith. And then you know what happens? When we disagree on that issue, because we've made it the center thing, we can't stay in relationship because we don't have a center to agree on. Okay, when we make that issue the center and we disagree, there's no other choice if we disagree on something that's a center issue than to part companies and not be in relationship. But it, I think Christianity is based on this core, which means we can disagree on some of these other issues because we fundamentally agree on the core. We need a strong core. We need a strong center. Part of the problem with Christianity today is I'm not sure we're Christ-centered enough, and I'm not sure we're propped up by the book enough. Now, outside of the center, there are some fundamental core beliefs that I think Christians need to think of them because of who Jesus is, because of the book, and because we love God and we love neighbor. So we could talk about these in a lot of different ways, but I want to talk about six core biblical values that I think in this come around the circle 
but get us a little closer to the boundaries. First of all, I think Christians need to care about creation. I think it's a must. In the Bible, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's what Psalms 24 tells us. When God creates Adam and Eve, he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Human beings were put on this earth for the purpose of continuing God's work, to being God's workforce and continuing to create in this world. We should care about our environment. We should pick up trash and recycle, develop and support sustainable farming, and be careful about the natural resources that we use. Now, that I think is core. I think that is essential, an essential extension of what this says. But out here on the fuzzy land, out here at the borders, we might disagree over particular pipelines. We might disagree over how we use our trade with other countries related to natural resources, whether we should or shouldn't have to drive energy-efficient cars. There might be a number of other boundary issues. But I think a core conviction is we care about the world that we live in. I think that's an essential part. In the Bible, character is important. Character is a core conviction. The Bible puts a high value on truth, on honesty, and on integrity. James 5 tells us to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Paul sees the importance of this development in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. God is at work in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. God loves you so much, right as you are, but he also loves you enough to not leave you like that. Develop you, to, to make you stronger in your character, in your honesty. We need to be honest and moral people and strive to develop character in the world around us. That, I think, is a core Christian belief character. Now, this line gets fuzzy, right? When we go to vote for candidates. And we have questions about this. We have questions about certain things. Um, but character for me is, a, I think, biblically a core conviction. Service. Service is a core conviction. Jesus doesn't rule over his disciples with power. He washes their feet. Paul develops this example from Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, saying, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus leads with humility and compassion. These are the things I think we should value as Christians, that we should help, that we should serve, that we should serve the poor, the disabled, the orphans, the widows, the elderly, how is it best to serve? How do we prioritize our serving? Well, some of those issues get, get into this boundary, right? Where we're not totally sure. 
where we've got to prayerfully decide what God calls us on to on specific issues. But service is an extension of this core. This is not, next one's not a topic that people like to talk about in the Bible, but the Bible actually has a lot to say about wealth. The Bible has a lot to say about wealth. That how, the Bible talks a lot about how people relate to money. Contrary to what people, most people quote, the Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. What does the Bible say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Paul says that the laborer deserves his wages. Or I love how the King James used to say it. A workman is worthy of their hire. That people deserve to be, and have the right to glorify God by creating value in this world. And they have a right to benefit and be rewarded for the value that they create. Now the Bible has also a lot to say about how you get this wealth and what you do with this wealth. The Bible has a lot to say about greed. Greed is not a good thing in the Bible. Especially greed at the expense of other people. The Bible also does not care for the idea of debt. In Proverbs 22, it says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. In Israel, slavery is not a good thing, right? They were slaves in Egypt. And so for them, borrowing, extreme borrowing, is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. In fact, in the Bible, the, the Israel was supposed to have a year every seven years called the year of Jubilee where debts were forgiven, where your debts were forgiven. Every seven years, you kind of got a slate cleaned. I'm not sure that they've ever actually done that. But that was the goal. And part of the goal was to make sure people didn't um, spend more than they had. Now, I don't think the Bible has a lot of good things to say about debt. And we, a lot of people want to talk about national debt. But, but I think personal debt, too. We as, we as people live way beyond our means. We're not patient for things. We end up paying way too much. And I have known people who cannot follow God's will to go to seminary or to do some kind of ministry work because they're so far in debt that they have to say no to God's will. That is slavery. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. I think as Christians, we need to think through what the Bible says about wealth and, and take that seriously. Now, what does that mean for taxes, for economic regulation of trade? Those are boundary issues, and those get fuzzy. We need to prayerfully consider those. But at the core, we've got to think through what the Bible says about wealth. That actually, it's not a bad thing depending on how it is used and how it is gotten. Issues of wealth relate to another core value. This is a word that gets used a lot, and I'm, I'm hesitant to use it here because it gets overused, but it's an important biblical word, and that word is justice. So, justice. What do we mean when we say justice in the Bible? Justice is not equality in the Bible. Justice is not fairness. It means things are right or as they should be. The, the way that we've said that in America that I think helps us understand the Bible's understanding of justice is the idea of equal opportunity. What that means is people have the right and the ability to work hard, to learn things, and to make the life that they feel called to make for themselves. They shouldn't be held back because of the color of their skin, their belief on an issue, or where they were born. Everybody has equal opportunity. Which also means, if you want to be lazy, you have equal opportunity to do that too. 
See, I, I think part of the problem we have with this word justice is that we in America have stopped talking about equal opportunity and now we're talking really about equality. That everybody should just have the same and then it would all be fair. That is not the Bible's understanding of justice either. I think it relates to equal opportunity. That we need to fight to make sure people have the right and the ability to follow God's will for their lives and not be held back because of other things. The last core that I think is important here in Scripture is the inherent value of life. People are made in the image of God. And they are valuable not because of what they offer to society, but they are valuable because of that. They're inherently valuable because they're made in the image of God. Therefore, we are accountable to what we do for what we do to other people. For me, and not everybody will agree with this, but for me, this issue of life also relates to the unborn. Um, I I told you that I, I don't want to share my own personal opinions, but my biblical conviction is that life includes the unborn. That when the Bible says in Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I think that means that we have a responsibility to as much as we can protect the unborn. I don't think, by the way, there are some Christians that this is the only thing they vote on. I don't think that that's a good way to be either. But it is an important issue for me because... If you get the issue of life right, I think a lot of other things pan out. But if you don't care about life, if you can't see the value of life, then there's a lot of other issues I think you're going to get wrong down the line. Now again, we can disagree on that, but why can we disagree on that? Because we agree here. And so whether you think abortion goes here and is a boundary issue or is a core conviction, um, we're agreeing fundamentally on the core, and that allows us the room to discuss the issues that we might disagree on. We're center set. We try to stay close to the house. And all these other issues, immigration, taxes, education, welfare, the de- definition of marriage. See, what, what we've got to do is we've got to re-out this core. And we've got to come out of this core, we've got to keep referring back to this core and then bringing those issues to those more specific issues. How do you do that? How do you take these core values and work them out into actual vote and policy decisions? Let me give you a couple of guidelines. First of all, I think the goal in your voting and in your political positions is best expressed out of Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah writes, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is an amazing verse from Jeremiah because these are people in exile. Okay, they've been removed from their home and brought into the other city. And Jeremiah says, you need to pray and you need to work for it. You need to seek the welfare of the city where God put you. That is, I think, that's, I think, how we start to move these to votes. Okay, what is going to be best for our country and our world? Coming out of this court and my understanding of what it means for the welfare of the country and the world. How do I seek the welfare? I think you should be informed, and I do think you should vote. But also understand that voting is not the end-all, be-all of your involvement in the world. I've known a lot of Christians that hide behind their voting and their political positioning 
instead of actually loving their actual neighbors. I think as Christians, we do much more in the world if we actually care about the people around us. I've already expressed how I have a concern and I really care about the issue of abortion. But when you look at the issue of abortion and you ask a lot of women why they've had abortions, it's because they're ashamed. It's also because they don't feel like they can have the support and the financial support and the medical support to be able to take care of that child. I got news for you. That's the kind of stuff the church could have an impact on. That people would have support. That they'd have care. That's the kind of thing we could be involved in. That's the kind of thing we could actually make a difference in an abortion rate. Here's another example. If you look at orphans in this country that are waiting for families. Okay? You look at abort- uh, of, of children that don't have families, that can't get adopted. It's a pretty big number. But I saw a statistic a while back that has really stuck with me that said if every church in America supported a family to adopt one child, one child, every church, that number disappears. The number is almost the same. If every church had one family that the church could gather around to support adopting one child on a waiting children list, the number of waiting children in this country disappears. Okay, I think those are the kind of things we need to be looking for as churches. I do think we should submit to government authorities. Paul makes this really clear in Romans 13. I would encourage you later to look up Romans 13 and see how strongly Paul feels about how you relate to your government. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. God puts authorities over us and we need to submit to them. Now, I think there's a line where that gets different, right? I shared an earlier story, an earlier sermon about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany. I think sometimes those lines get blurred. Um, and I really don't think we're there yet. A couple of verses later, Paul also makes it clear that we should pay our taxes. He writes, For because of this you also pay your taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And we should be careful how we relate to government. We should pay our taxes. That's a character issue. That's a character issue for how we respond to our government. The other thing the Bible says very clearly is that we are responsible to pray for our leaders. First Timothy, Paul writes, First of all then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're responsible to pray for our government leaders. And every time I hear people complain about this president or that president or this candidate or that candidate, I always deep down, want to, I want to ask them, I never do out loud, but I always want to ask them, tell me about your prayer life for the president of the United States. Tell me about how you've been praying for this person that you're complaining about. Because I think when you start praying for somebody, you get a whole different perspective on them and on who is ultimately in charge there. 
Pray for your leaders. I think it would change how we talk about politics immensely if we took that seriously. So let me, let me now address the topic that is sort of the crux of this discussion, right? Did you all know there's an election coming up? Yeah. Some people are really excited about one candidate or the other. Some are a little hesitant about both. Some are frankly terrified about both. Some Christians are not voting or writing in a candidate, but I'm not sure that's the answer. I, I think pretty firmly one of those two people is going to be in there. And uh, I personally want to cast my vote in a way that helps make that decision. I think what we've got to do with all this background in mind is we've got to look at these two candidates and come out of this core and look at them both and try to make the decision about them as a whole. Who is going to do the best welfare or at least the least amount of harm for the city, the nation, and the world that we live in? Look at their character, their platform, those who they've said they would appoint to government and prayerfully seek the welfare of our nation. Look at who they think they might appoint as judges. I think that's going to be a really big issue uh, for these, this next president. Pray about it. Think about it. Come out of this core and vote. And I think in November, I'm going to vote for... No, I'm still not going to tell you. But I will tell you this, and listen to me as I hear it. Listen to me as I tell you. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Remember who your king is and to what kingdom you truly belong. You are part of God's eternal kingdom. Remember that in the Bible, God uses storms to have his will be done. He uses pagan kings to accomplish his will. He uses the cross to give his greatest victory of all. And he even one time spoke out of the mouth of an ass. Trust him. Whoever is elected, find your hope in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that your will would be done. Give us a sense of confidence that you are Lord of all and help us to wisely come out of this core where Jesus is the center of our lives and where we are informed by your scriptures that we may make good votes and good decisions. We do pray for those in leadership, for our president now and our president-to-be, for whatever this coming administration is, Lord, for our local officials, for our state officials. Lord, for the global economy, we lift all these things before you. Lord, we give them to you. Pray that you would worry about them so we don't have to worry about them quite as much. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.